Good morning, church family. And those of you watching online and a couple of people out on the patio, we're glad that you're worshiping with us today. Uh, you know, about 23 years ago, a book came out called The Prayer of Jabez. And The Prayer of Jabez was a book based on obs- an obscure prayer by a man named Jabez that's found in the Old Testament part of the Bible in First Chronicles chapter 4. And the prayer of Jabez goes like this. O God, that you would bless me and enlarge my territory. Let your hand be with me and keep me from harm so that I will be free from pain. And the Bible says that God answered Jabez's prayer. Well, the book, The Prayer of Jabez, presented this prayer as a model prayer for Christians to say each day that God would bless them, expand their territory, keep them from harm, and they would be free from pain. In fact, the book promised that if you prayed this prayer for 30 days, that each day it would change your life. Well, this book became an international bestseller. Churches started study groups based on it. And soon the big evangelical marketing machine took over and you could buy Prayer of Jabez journals and kids' devotionals and even listen to the Prayer of Jabez worship experience. And people bought Prayer of Jabez t-shirts and bracelets and they put it on wall art in their homes and on bumpers, uh, on license plate frames of their cars. And people turned the Bible's description about a particular prayer from a particular man at a particular point in his life into a prescription for how everyone else should pray all the time. And even now, 23 years later, if you look at Amazon's top 100 selling books on prayer, you'll find the prayer of Jabez at number 67. How should we approach the spiritual practice of prayer? Most people do pray, after all. Ten years ago, the Barna organization did a study of Americans' prayer practices, and in that survey, over 90% of Americans said that they had prayed at least once over the last three months. 62% of those surveyed said they prayed to thank God. 61% that they had prayed for needs in their life. 49% for guidance, 47% for health, 43% for forgiveness of sins. And there's even data that suggests that atheists and agnostics pray on occasion. Prayer is a nearly universal human practice. But perhaps not all prayer is good prayer. And maybe some of us need to be reformed and reshaped in how we approach the practice of prayer. We're in a series through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount that we're calling Reformed. And this series is focused on our discipleship. Here at Glenkirk, we we describe discipleship with the word become. Christian discipleship is a journey of becoming. Becoming more fully devoted disciples of Jesus. We see that word become on our wall. Each time we come here to worship at Glenkirk, because we are all in a discipleship journey. And this is a season for us, all of us, to take new steps in that discipleship journey. 
And we're praying that God will use this series and our, our Bible study guide and our seven-week discipleship groups as a catalyst for each of us to take whatever new steps are right for each of us. And last week, we began to talk about reforming our spiritual practices. And as we saw last week, that when we approach our spiritual practices as a transaction, we don't receive any spiritual benefit in our discipleship. But when we reform how we approach these practices to approach them transformationally instead of as a transaction, God works within these practices to help us become, help us grow in our discipleship. And today we're going to continue this focus on these practices by talking about prayer and fasting. And so I want to invite you, if you're able, would you stand with me for the, the reading of God's word? The words of Jesus from Matthew 6, verses 5 through 18. Jesus says, And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive yours. When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting but only to your Father who is unseen. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. You can be seated. These are the words of Jesus. In verse 1, Jesus warned us about practicing our righteousness in order to be seen by other people. And these practices of righteousness are what I'm calling spiritual practices or spiritual disciplines. And in this chapter, Jesus talks about three, giving, which we looked at last week, and prayer and fasting, which we just read about. Instead of trumpeting our giving to be seen by other people, Jesus says better to give secretly. Instead of ostentatious public prayers, better to pray in secret. And instead of making ourselves look miserable when we fast, better to fast in secret. Giving prayer and fasting are examples of three distinct kinds of spiritual practices. 
Giving is an outward practice where our spiritual practice is directed towards other people. Prayer is a Godward spiritual practice where the practice is directed towards God. And fasting is an inward spiritual practice where our practice is directed within ourselves so we can see and discern where God is moving and what God is saying and where God is changing us. Verses 5 and 6, Jesus warns us about a transactional approach to prayer that turns prayer into a public performance. And everything I said last week about giving to be seen by others applies to prayer. Jesus' focus on praying in secret is designed to be a gut check, to, to cause us to ask ourselves why we're praying in the first place. If we can't stop ourselves from praying and turning prayer into a production, we should pray in secret. But we also find examples in the New Testament of disciples of Jesus praying together. So the early Christians did not interpret Jesus' words here as a universal ban on ever praying when other people are around. But if you do pray to be seen by others as a production, then the only benefit you get from that time of prayer is being seen by others. But then in verses 7 and 8, Jesus warns us about a different kind of transactional approach to prayer. Some people don't treat prayer as a show, but they do treat it as a technique to get something that they want. Some pagan religions teach that if you just pray the right words in the right way the right number of times, you can get what you want. The, the technical term for this is magic, not in a card trick or illusion kind of sense. But magic in the sense of trying to use spoken words to bend supernatural power to do your will so you can get something that you want. And back in Jesus' day, many people would purchase written magical incantations that people would sell them because they believed if you said the right words, the right way, the right number of times over and over again, you could get something that you wanted. Archaeologists have discovered thousands of these written magical incantations, and you could buy these things, and you could buy them for your health or to, for your prosperity or to get revenge on an enemy or to try to make someone fall in love with you, all kinds of reasons. And sometimes Christians approach prayer the same way, as a kind of magic. Some people treated the prayer of Jabez that way. And that's why Jesus reminds us here that God knows what we need even before we pray. Prayer is not a technique to bend God's will to our will. Prayer is not magic. That's a transactional view of prayer. And so instead, Jesus gives us what we call the Lord's Prayer. Bible scholar N.T. Wright says that when Jesus gave us this prayer, he was sharing his very own prayer life with us. The Lord's Prayer is a window into Jesus' relationship with his Father. And at its core, the Lord's Prayer shows us that prayer 
is a relationship. We reform prayer in our lives by approaching it as a relationship. A relationship. When we approach prayer as a relationship, it becomes transformational in our lives instead of a performance or a technique to get something that we want. And that kind of prayer, transformational prayer, changes us. The reward we get from this kind of prayer is a greater awareness of God's presence in our lives, discernment of how God is working around us, deeper intimacy in our relationship with God, and transformation of our character. And yes, God does respond to our requests, and he meets our needs, not because we say the right words over and over again in the right way, but because God knows what we need even before we pray. Now, I wish we could spend the whole rest of the year on the Lord's Prayer. It's that important. But let me just outline some basic features of this prayer. The phrase, our Father in heaven, reminds us that we pray as part of a loving family. Jesus didn't teach us to pray, my Father, give me this day, my daily bread, lead me not into temptation. He taught us our Father. Lead us not into temptation. Whenever we pray this prayer, we pray as part of a family of other disciples of Jesus who have been adopted by a loving father into the family of God. Even when we pray this prayer when no one else is around, we never pray it alone. We pray as part of a family. We also pray to honor God's reputation. We ask God to reveal God's name as holy. Our prayer is for God to be seen and experienced as God truly is. We pray for people to experience the God who is, not just the God they've imagined in their imagination or the God they've created in their own image or the God that they've heard about from other people. When we pray, we participate in God's mission in the world. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When Jesus came to this world, he inaugurated God's kingdom, but we still await that day when he comes again, when he will consummate that kingdom. And until then, we live in between where God's kingdom is present among us, but we also live in the midst of the kingdoms of this world. And so we see things like war and suffering and terror and the atrocities that we've seen and witnessed in Israel and Gaza and places like Ukraine and other places around the world. We see awful suffering and poverty and injustice. And in this prayer, we join with Jesus in praying for God's will to be done in those situations, for his kingdom to come in power. And in this prayer, we ask God to help us find our place as disciples of Jesus in that suffering. God's mission is to proclaim the good news, to demonstrate God's love, 
to correct injustice and to invite people to be reconciled to God and reconciled to each other. And each disciple has a role to play in the mission of God. And it's in prayer that we find our role. We also pray to receive what we need for life. Give us today our daily bread. Our daily bread represents what each of us need to survive each day. God knows what we need even before we ask. And when we approach prayer as a relationship, we can freely present our requests to God. And as we do, we learn to trust God to meet our needs and give us what we need for life. We pray to receive forgiveness for our sins. Forgive us our debts, or some translations have transgressions or our sins. We all sin, not just in the things that we do that we know we shouldn't do, but also in the things that we fail to do that we know that we should have done. And sin disrupts our relationship with God, and it fractures relationships in the family of God. And so when we pray, we pray to receive forgiveness for the ways that we've done that. When we pray, we ask for and we receive forgiveness. Confession is a part of this relationship of prayer. But we also pray to show forgiveness to others. In fact, Jesus teaches us to ask God to forgive us our sins as we have already forgiven those who sinned against us. Think about that one for a while. He elaborates in verses 14 and 15 of our reading on this connection between forgiving others and being forgiven. People who are forgiven of their sins are able to forgive other people and expected to forgive. Now, that doesn't mean that people who hurt us are left off the hook, but it does mean that we stop drinking the poison of unforgiveness. It does mean that we stop feasting on the bitter fruit of resentment, that we release those who harm us into the hands of a God of justice. It's part of the relationship of prayer. We pray to find God's direction in our lives. Lead us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Lead us. We pray for God to guide our steps, to protect us from spiritual attack, to lead us through tempting and testing situations we encounter. When we're not sure what direction to go, we pray. When we're being spiritually attacked, we pray. When a trial feels too much for us to bear, we pray. Because we all need guidance and direction in life, and we find it in the relationship of prayer. And then finally, we pray to acknowledge God's greatness. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. And that final part, it isn't found in the earliest manuscripts of Matthew. In your Bible, it's probably in a footnote listed as an alternate reading. But in some ways, it sums it up. It brings it full circle because we start by praying to honor God's name and we end by acknowledging God's greatness that his name is honored. All of these parts of this prayer presuppose that prayer is a relationship. It's not a performance. It's not a technique. It's not a method to get something you want. It's a relationship, the kind of relationship 
that Jesus himself shared with the Father. And when we approach prayer as a relationship, it will change us. Here's the ironic thing about the book, The Prayer of Jabez. The, the book, The Prayer of Jabez, presented this prayer from this guy Jabez as a model prayer that Christians should pray each day. Yet it was never intended to be that. It's just a prayer that the Bible records that a man prayed once at a specific point in his life. But what people were looking for in the prayer of Jabez, Jesus gave us in this prayer. If you want a prayer to pray every day that will change your life, this is it. In fact, in Luke's account of Jesus giving the Lord's Prayer, Jesus teaches his disciples this prayer because they see something about Jesus's prayer life that's different. So they come to Jesus and say, Jesus, teach us to pray. And in Luke 11, Jesus says, when you pray, here's what to say. In Luke 11, Jesus gives us this prayer as a prayer to say, a set prayer. If you don't have words to pray, here are some words. Here are Jesus's words. Pray with Jesus. Here in Matthew 6, Jesus presents the Lord's Prayer as a model prayer. Here's how to pray. Luke presents it as what to pray. Matthew as how to pray. It's both. This is why the church in the early second century told Christians that they should stop what they were doing three times a day, morning, noon, and evening, and pray this prayer. This is why the early church used this prayer as a model to teach people how to pray who didn't know how to. This is where to start. Now, before I came to Glenkirk, I completed a three-year certificate program on how to be a spiritual director. And each month in this program, I read a different book about prayer and I wrote a paper on that book. And I did this for three years. Many of these books were from ancient Christian writers, the mothers and fathers of the church. People like Athanasius and Augustine, Hildegard, Juan de la Cruz, Teresa of Avila, Bernard of Clairvaux, Catherine of Siena. I read about prayer from the ancient Egyptian and Syrian desert fathers and mothers. I read about prayer from reformers like Calvin and Wycliffe and Tyndale and Martin Luther. I read about intercessory prayer, spiritual warfare prayer, contemplative prayer, silent prayer, centering prayer, breath prayer, listening prayer. And after three years of all these books, I end up with a single insight. Prayer is a relationship. And this prayer that Jesus gives us is the foundation of that relationship. So when you don't know what to pray, pray this. When words fail you, pray this. We reform our approach to the practice of prayer by approaching prayer as a relationship. Now, very briefly, Jesus also mentions fasting in this section. Fasting is an example of an inner spiritual practice. And we don't talk as much about fasting these days as we talk about prayer. But in Jesus's day, fasting was a core spiritual practice. People usually fasted at least once a week. Now, fasting is temporarily abstaining from something, usually abstaining from food, but it could be other things, for spiritual purposes. So fasting is different than dieting. 
because fasting is for a spiritual purpose, not weight loss or health. Now, there are partial fasts, like fasting from meat or fasting from sweets or fasting from alcohol. And fasting can include abstaining from things other than food. Silence is fasting from talking. Solitude is fasting from being around people, which introverts love that. Fasting was a central spiritual practice in ancient Israel. It was for Jesus, and it was for the early church. And notice again, Jesus doesn't say, if you fast, he says, when you fast. He expects us to fast, but he challenges us to reform how we approach it. We reform fasting by approaching it as an inner spiritual journey, an inner spiritual journey. All these inward spiritual practices are that. Instead of treating fasting as a show to broadcast how seriously, how serious we are about God, treat fasting as an inner journey, a spiritual practice that can transform us. Now, in the Bible, people fast for a variety of reasons. Sometimes people fast in response to a crisis. Esther called the nation of Israel to fast in response to a national crisis. King David fasted when his newborn was sick. Sometimes people fast as an expression of their repentance from their sins. In the Old Testament, the entire nation of Israel would fast every year on the Day of Atonement. And for us as Christians, Ash Wednesday and Good Friday are fasting days. In fact, the reading for Ash Wednesday that's traditionally read is this passage from Matthew 6. Sometimes people fast to discern God's direction. In Acts chapter 13, the leaders of the church in Antioch were fasting when they experienced the Holy Spirit telling them to send out Barnabas and Paul to start new churches. They discern God's direction fasting. And sometimes people fast just to develop a closer relationship with Jesus. We reform how we approach fasting by approaching it as an inner spiritual journey. Spiritual practices can be transformational. We need them in this journey of becoming, this journey of discipleship. But only if we approach them Jesus's way. A lot of people listen to Jesus give the Sermon on the Mount. We get to the end in chapter 7, and Matthew tells us that all the people in the crowd were amazed by what Jesus said yet they remained in the crowd. And perhaps one reason they remained in the crowd is they weren't ready to enter a life where their understanding of these practices was reformed and reshaped. They couldn't give up their transactional framework that you give in order to get honor, that you pray in order to get what you want, that you fast in order to impress people. It was only those who came out of the crowd who became disciples, who gave up the need to be seen by others, who surrendered their will to Jesus' will, who gave up their pursuit to impress, that these practices became transformational. And my heartfelt hope for Glenkirk is that we are a community of discipleship, not just a crowd of people who are impressed by the words of Jesus, 
but a community of people who've stepped out of the crowd to trust and follow Jesus, a a community that's being reformed into the image of Jesus instead of squeezed into the mold of our world or even squeezed into the mold of our consumer-driven, shallow church culture here in America, but a community of discipleship. And for that, we need spiritual practices. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these words of Jesus that challenge us to not only engage in practices, but to ask why we're doing it in the first place. That realign our hearts. That reshape our values. That seek the reward of a deeper relationship with you instead of the shallow rewards of impressing other people or getting what we think we want in the moment. Father, deepen us as individuals, deepen us as a church, that we might break new ground in this journey of becoming. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.